Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lionel Lamb Ministries, and you have now joined our Arab Shabbat service here at B'nai Shalom, and we're glad to have you. Uh, it's, it's an honor for you to invite us into your home or wherever you're at uh, to have a part of this Arab Shabbat service as we usher in the Sabbath. A couple of quick announcements I'd like to cover before we get into our service. Um, we're uh, very excited that we've joined up with a local congregation, Hebraic Family Fellowship, here in the Norman Moore area, and we're going to, they're planning on hosting a Hanukkah conference uh, that will come up in December. Lionel Lamb is going to be a, a big part of that. And so we'd love to invite you to come to that uh, and ob- observe and celebrate Hanukkah with us together. Uh, we have a number of teachers that are scheduled to come and be a part of that. Registration is now open. Go to the Lion and Lamb site and look for events and look for the Hanukkah conference, and you can be a part of that. We uh, Last week I shared with you the needs of the ministry and an appeal for donations on the part of the audience. Uh, I want to remind everyone that we do have kind of a special uh, going on at the moment, uh, we have a special program called the Feasts of the Messiah and their Prophetic Fulfillment. This is a teaching that I have done uh, that hasn't been seen uh, elsewhere, and we're offering it as a gift to anyone who wants to make a donation to receive that. If you would <clears throat> like to get that and you'd like to make a donation uh, to the ministry, uh, we actually have a special website. It's called donationoffer.com that you can go to and get directly this particular teaching. And again, any donation uh, can be sent in to uh, receive that. Again, that's an excellent example. We share some spiritual blessings with you. You share some material blessings. It works good for you. It works good for us. And that's how, how it works, being part of God's family. So I encourage you to check that out. I think that that particular teaching will be exciting for new people that are in the faith, but I think it also will be some new and enlightening stuff for those who've been keeping the feasts already um, before. Uh, I also want to remind you that our Feast of Tabernacles coming up in October is filling up quickly. Uh, There's only one month left to be able to register and be a part of that. And again, you know, when you register based on your payment, full payment, that's what puts you in the line uh, for being able to get into the camp. We're expecting it to be a full camp again this year. I would urge you not to hesitate and wait if you want to be a part of it. Please sign up for that. And you can also go to our website and register for the Feast of Tabernacles coming up. All right, those are our announcements for this Shabbat, and uh, I'm ready for Sabbath, so let's go right to Kiddush. Please join our family as we usher in the Sabbath. Oh. 
Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Let's see the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei Blessed are you, O Lord God, key of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. This is the blessing of the bread. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Atadonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Hamutzi Lechem Min Haaretz. Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for my wife and just the continual blessing that she is to me, Father. Um, she always considers me, Father, and I praise you for it, for giving me such a humble woman, Father. I, I can't thank you enough, Father. I just I thank you so much for her presence in our home, just the spirit that she brings um, to our daughter, Father, and just the joy that she brings to me as well. And she reaches out to her neighbors, Father, and reaches out to her family. Um, thank you, Father, that she provides us with good food and, and just a clean house, Father. But even more so, Father, she loves your word and she loves you, Father. Seeing this just fills my heart with so much joy, Father, and, and just knowing that I have a gift given from you, Father. I know that you're watching over me, Father. You are so good. We praise you for all these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. All right. Let's bless our sons. <laughs> Be 
Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michmocha. Michmocha Baelim Adonai Michmocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord. Who is like you, O Lord? Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshramru. Veshramru v'nei Israel et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adortam b'rit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Israel ot hit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'retz avayom ha'shavi'i shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. But I'll turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha, uv'kol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale'a asher nechim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. Ve'shin nantam la'venecha, 
All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 1. And as you are opening the scripture there, let me do the blessing before the Torah. 
Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher b'chabanu mikol ha'amim, venatan lanu et torato, Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-Torah ha-Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples, and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. We now begin the fifth book of Moses as we go through our Torah cycle for this year. And we now come to the book of Deuteronomy. Um, we get the name Deuteronomy from the Greek Septuagint, where they translated that this is the second law, if you will. And so Deuteronomy is second law in Greek. That comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 18, where it talks about how if a new king was ever to rise up, they were to make a copy of the laws that was the law for the land so that then the king would basically have the knowledge and would be able to honor the law that had been established by the Lord. So obviously, the second law, um, as we look at the entire book of Deuteronomy, it is a repetition of the law. It is Moses' words as he wrote down what he said what, when he heard the words of the Lord and then what he then spoke and the words that he spoke to the children of Israel. And that's where we get the Hebrew name for this book, Devarim, and also for our Torah portion for this week, where it says in, chapter, in verse 1, these are the words which Moses spoke to all of Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness. Devarim, which means words. This comes from the, the singular Hebrew word is Debar, which is made up of a Dalit, a Bet, and a Resh. This is a very interesting word. Obviously, the word, which means words, uh, obviously would probably have some interesting meanings to it. It's also commonly translated as things. So not only is Debar words, but it's also Things. This is sort of an interesting discussion that one could be had where it says when somebody speaks words, are they real? Are words actually tangible? Are they measurable? Are they um, can you really quantify words? And well, no, they come out of somebody and you, they go into your mind, but there's no way to actually truly quantify it. Now, a thing you can you can measure it. You can have weight to it. But there's an interesting discussion that could be had when it comes to when somebody speaks something, there's power in words. There's power in the things that somebody says, the impact that they have, that they are sometimes words spoken by somebody is more powerful and has more substance, if you will, than even an object or even something of great value, a house, a car, whatever it might be. Sometimes words are even more powerful than a thing. And that's something that we can always keep in mind that with these words that we're going to go through as we go through the book of Deuteronomy this year, these are the words that Moses is speaking that he wrote down. These are the things that were said in the process of all of the stories of the Exodus. We're going to recount for the next several weeks things that already previously happened that we talked about previously in the books of Exodus, the book of Numbers, Leviticus even, and that we are going to go and we're going to have some repetition However, what we're desiring to be and what Moses is desiring is that his words, the things that were said and the way that these things were described and the additional information and detail that we will have about these stories, that these are things that should penetrate you. These are things that should have substance to your life that we as we go through and as we study these things, these should have as great of impact, if not greater than even knowing necessarily what happened but actually hearing 
what the Lord spoke and hearing in the recounting of these stories that these should impact you and should enter your mind and have impact on you. That's what the power of words, that's the power that words have. Back to that Hebrew word. It's interesting. I always love looking at the meaning of the Hebrew letters. And the dalit, which represents a door, the bet, which represents a house, and then the resh, which represents a head or a chief. And the way that I like to think of it is this, is that if you think of the head and that inside your head is your brain, your mind, where all of your thoughts are, and that those are all contained inside your head, your skull, and that there's almost like a, a house, an encasement of your head. But then the door at the beginning of that word is the opening of that, that whenever you speak, you open your mouth and it's almost like a doorway into someone's mind and the, all the thoughts and whatever they know and say that when words come out, you have this interesting look into somebody opening up one's mind to you. So fascinating study when you go into those, the meaning of those letters and what that word that we're really talking about here. Let me talk about, let me give an overview of what we're going to discuss um, here. In, let's, let me talk first about the book of Deuteronomy and what we're going to cover. What we have here is Moses recounting a book, all the words that were written down of everything that took place. And he's standing opposite on the Jordan, opposite the promised land, and he's standing up. And we have a specific date mentioned here at the very beginning of the book that it's on the first day of the 11th month. That it is that Moses is speaking to all the children of Israel about to go into the promised land. We've already concluded what we no longer have a chronological description of what's happening. We now have for the rest of this book, Moses standing on a mountain, sharing his words, speaking to the children of Israel. And that is what we are going to do for the entirety of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses knows he's not going to enter into the promised land. He already had sinned. He had already, in the story that took place where he had struck the rock as he was instructed to speak to the rock, the Lord had spoke to Moses and said, you're not going to go into the promised land. This generation, the younger generation, they will go into the promised land, but you, Moses, will not. And so what we have here is Moses, near the end of his life, now sharing everything that he what he wants to say to the children of Israel, what he heard, what he observed, what recounting what the Lord had said. And what we have here is we basically have a deathbed declaration of Moses. In the court of law, this is actually admissible in court. When somebody is on their deathbed, knowing they're going to die, the words that they speak are considered to be true because there's no longer any reason for someone to lie or they don't want to take some sort of sin or some sort of thing that was untrue to their grave. They want to make sure that they are upright before the Lord, even on their deathbed, that there is truth spoken. And so when you, as we go through Deuteronomy, we should remember these are the words, this is the last testimony of a man about to die. Moses, everything that he shares and as he speaks. And as we go through, he will be pleading with the children of Israel for obedience, to obey the Lord. As we go through some of these things, it will seem repetitive that he that he pleads to them to obey and then also speaks of curses if they don't obey. We describe Moses as one of the greatest prophets of the Lord. And one of the things that we believe is that Moses had seen and knew what the children of Israel were going to do once they entered into the promised land. We thought that was the end of the story. All blessings, wonderful things are happening. The children of Israel enter into the promised land after coming out of Egypt and then they live happily ever after. Correct? 
No, we obviously know and have the history of Israel and the greater sin and idolatry that they committed even after they entered into the promised land. I believe Moses saw this. He saw this future. And so through these words in this last testament that Moses has to speak to the children of Israel, he pleads with the children of Israel to obey, knowing and hoping and praying that what he believes is going to happen, that this was still an a generation that committed idolatry and made covenant with the people of the land when they shouldn't have. He was he pleaded with them for obedience, hoping and praying that that those things would not take place. The other thing happening here, and this is going to go into more in the next week's portion, is this, is that Deuteronomy is also a renewal of the covenant God made with Israel. We're going to recount of them going to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, and that they were receiving the covenant from God, the commandments, all of the words, and that we look at this and we see that this was a marriage covenant between the bride, the children of Israel, and between the groom, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, that this was a covenant. And what we have here is we also have a renewal of that covenant. Whenever one gets married, you get married, you exchange vows, you, um, and the covenant is formed. Later on, at times, you will renew that covenant. You will renew your vows. And what you'll do is you will recount the stories of what has happened. We, you'll recount the story of what happened before you made the covenant. You'll recount what has happened since the covenant was made all the way up to now we're now renewing the covenant. And that is also going to be what Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Deuteronomy represents as well. And this was done and there, this was uh, this is done within marriages. And this is a very special thing for those that are in covenant to actually remember those words, remember the vows that were made and to renew the covenant. And one of the things for us, as we sit here now in modern times, reading the stories of old, we should take these and read these as if these are spoken to us as if they are being spoken in the present. Not something that took place in the past, but something that is very present and very applicable to to you and your personal life today. And that because we should go through on a regular basis a renewal of that covenant that we have with our Father, with our Heavenly Father, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that has chosen us, that we should always remember that. Now, we make mistakes sometimes. Sometimes we forget that covenant. But that's why we read these stories. That's why we have these renewal of the covenant. That's why we have these words written for us. So that we can remember the words, the covenant that God has made with us and that those speak to us and that we will continue to be in fellowship and be a part of the family of God. Amen. So now let me go through and let's talk about what this particular portion is covering here for this week. We'll talk about how Moses is on the mountain and he's speaking these words. He will also recount to us that there were leaders of the tribes that were um, that were appointed because the people grew to a great number. Let me actually start here. Uh, let's let me read here at verse nine of Deuteronomy chapter one. And I spoke to you at that time saying, I alone am not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make a thousand times more more numerous than you are. And bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the thing which you told us to do is good. 
So they appointed tribes, uh, leaders of the tribes. And so what we're talking about here is that Moses has words to share and everything that he spoke of what the Lord said. But the reason why we describe this is the, num- the multitude was great. However, we've appointed leaders so that everyone could hear the words. Before we go any further, before we start talking about what happened and what the Lord spoke, remember, we have leaders that describe these things to you so that nobody can stand in the back of the congregation and say, well, we didn't hear what Moses said. The reason why we set this up is so that everyone could receive the word so that there were captains of tens and hundreds and thousands. And Moses spoke to the captains and all the words went down to each person so that no one can then stand up and say, wait a minute, I don't remember this story. I don't remember when Moses said this. We have this set up here at the beginning of the reason why this is written is so that we remember that every, we made, created a system where everyone could hear the words of Moses and hear what the Lord had said. So then before we go any further, that should not be anyone's excuse as to what was actually spoken. We now go in starting at verse 19, where we talk about how they came to Kadesh Barnea and they came to the part of the story where they sent in the spies And then they came back with a bad report. Let me now read here at verse 19. We departed from Horeb and went all through all the great and terrible wilderness, saw the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God has commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God has given us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, possess it. And the Lord your God, God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. This was a wonderful word that we heard, but... We remember what the story, how it went. Every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land and bring back a word, the word to us by way which you which you should go up and of the cities for which we should come. The plan pleased me well. So we took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. They departed and they went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. They took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it's a good land, which the Lord has given us, giving is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord, your God. And you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great. They're fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. All the sons of Israel sitting there hearing this story knowing the great tragedy and the great rebellion that it was that that their fathers, remember, the generation that committed these sins had passed away. But all the sons and all the children, they're hearing this story. This is not a story that one wants to hear again. 
nobody wants to hear of how four, how 38 years ago that their fathers committed the sin. Otherwise, we'd be in the promised land. But nobody wants to hear about how their fathers made the mistakes and ended up wandering in the wilderness. And now, finally, we're going back to the land. Nobody wants to hear that story. But what the words that Moses is speaking is this, is that he is rebuking the children of Israel to point out the mistakes and the sins that they made. The sins that their fathers and their their parents had made. This is a rebuke. This is to cause somebody to serve to them to not make that same mistake. This is not a curse upon them. This is not to be uh, to speak negatively to the children of Israel. This is for their very benefit. In the same way that a father rebukes their child when they have made a mistake. Or when they are describing something in the past that this was a mistake that was made before. I'm pleading with you to not make this same mistake. I love that phrasing where it says that the Lord carried, that, that God carried the children of Israel as a man carries his son. That continues to go, we haven't heard that phrase before, but it continues to show the loving kindness that God has for his people and for the children of Israel. And that this is the truly the lessons that are trying to be learned, trying to be taught to these children is that this is a loving father trying to teach them these things and recalling these stories so that it might penetrate their hearts and their minds as to not make the same mistake again. Now, does that mean the children of Israel never rebelled against the Lord again? Unfortunately, no. But these are lessons that as we continue to read these stories, that they would penetrate our hearts, our minds, that this is why these things are being recounted. It goes on again, he continues on now, verse 34, the Lord heard the sound of your words and he was angry. He took an oath saying, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land, which I swore to give to the fathers, except for Caleb, the son of Yephaneh. He shall see it and to him and his children and give the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord also was angry with me for your sake, saying that even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children that you said would be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. And them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, we've sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God has commanded us. And when every one of you had girded his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you will be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord. And presumptively went up into the mountain and the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. This again continues. This is what happened. This is the story. Even though you rebelled again, you then said we were going to go up and fight. The Lord said he would not be with you. This is what happened to your parents, your fathers who did not obey. I'm trying to teach you not to make those same mistakes. 
As we go into chapter 2 here in Deuteronomy, it goes and continues the story as they went and as they turned back to the promised land. As they returned for now, the passage of time is now 38 more years, that they would then turn and go back to the land. And this is recounting very specifically the last couple of Torah portions in the book of Numbers, where they would go and then they they came across the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir. And it describes again in detail that they were not to go up and fight the sons of Esau, that they were there specifically for a reason. And the Lord said that you can buy from them, but you are not to fight them nor antagonize them, that you are simply to pass by them. And I described several weeks ago about how God has a greater plan for the sons of Esau that is yet to be fulfilled, that had nothing that didn't have to do with the children of Israel in this exodus. But there's a greater plan in the future for the sons of Esau. It then talks about how they came into the land of Moab and then how they finally, all the men of war from the previous generation had passed away. It says that in verse 16 of chapter 2. And it goes in and then they came to the, um, they came to Ammon and they came to the kingdoms of Moab and they came to the two kingdoms that were just defeated in the last portions. The king of Sihon and and the Og, the king of Bashan. And so this is going to recap again the stories that we've done in the last few portions. But there's a few more details that are described here. So things that actually encouraged me as I went and reread this portion. And we looked at and we were talking about, oh, yeah, the children of Israel, they went in. Kings came against them and then they defeated them. But as we read here and go into more detail, listen to some of these things that are said here. Let me now read verse 20 of chapter 2. That was also regarded as the land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. And the people who were great and numerous and as tall as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them and they disposed of them and dwelt in their place just as he had done for the descendants of Esau who dwelt in Seir. And he destroyed the Horites before them and disposed of them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And the Avim who dwelt in the villages as far as Gaza, and the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their places. Rise, take your journey and cross the river Arnon. I have given this land to, to Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. What we're talking about here is we're talking about the people of the land. and We're giving more detail of who used to dwell there and who is dwelling there today. And we're talking about giants in the land. Now, when we read this and we remember... We hearken back to the bad report. Remember what the children of Israel, the the spies had said about the land when they went into it? They said there were giants in the land, that there there were giants that were great and mighty and tall, though never in the scripture was it ever refuted of that part of the report. In fact, we have more detail here in Deuteronomy that talks about how, yes, there were people regarded as giants that were in the land. It talks about um, where um, earlier in in chapter two, it talks about how the descendants of Esau, they had removed all the people that were there and they had defeated giants. And that then once that the kingdoms that remained, they have a history of defeating giants. And the children of Israel are coming in and they're saying, and the question is, is are they able to defeat this people? Are they able to defeat a kingdom that once defeated giants or that there was even ones that were giants as well? If you go into chapter three and we talk about the king Og of of, uh, Bashan, 
We read previously, yeah, he was a king. We took care of him. But if you go to chapter 3 of verse 11, it says, For Og, the king of Bashan, remained as the remnant of the giants. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead, nine cubits in its length and four cubits in his width. We're actually describing a king that was just defeated that we didn't know as we were reading the end of the book of Numbers. That now is being described as that this was a giant that the children of Israel defeated. That these sons, this younger generation, defeated these giants. And that, the size of that bed, it, it's interesting that that detail, it's almost a mystery as to, man, that is an incredible amount of detail. If you convert the cubit there, it actually, his bed was 13 and a half feet long and six feet wide. It was like two king-sized beds stacked right on, on top of each other was the size of this, this king's bed and that it was made of iron, that it had to be strong enough to support him. Yet this guy was disposed of by the children of Israel. We took care of him, no problem. What we have here is we almost have a hidden testimony of God's faithfulness and the power of God that when God was with them and when he went and he led them and they fought with these kings, these were some of the kings that when they sent out the men and these wars that the children of Israel won at the end of the Exodus, they defeated giants and they defeated people with a history of defeating giants. That's how powerful God being with them made the armies of Israel and the power of what they were able to defeat. This should be an encouragement to us. Now, we can look at this, and some people might look and they'll be like, okay, well, this is some story of old, or it sounds kind of like a fairy tale, if you will. But when I read the words that are here in the Scripture, I've said words mean things. Words have power. There's no idle word in the Scripture. There's from the previous book. There's no idle number in the Scripture. That when we read these things, we should not look at this and go, oh, that's kind of interesting. What we should look at it and say, amazing how powerful God is and that the children of Israel, they feared because of giants in the land. As they go back and they went, if you go back and you read that bad report, they talked about the land being great. But the one thing they said that caused a great deal of fear in the children of Israel was that there were giants in the land, that they were very large and they were mighty. Actually, they were. But the thing is, is if we were simply following the Lord, if we weren't, if we were just leading the following the cloud by day and the fire by night and just following with the Lord who's promised to dwell with us and promised to be with us, even those giants can fall at our hand. This is something that should encourage us all in all the trials and tribulations and struggles that we face, that sometimes things seem insurmountable. Sometimes things seem like we can't defeat them, but with God, all things are possible. And that as we look at this story that looks like it's repetitive and describing these stories, whenever you have this additional detail, it speaks to me and it encourages me that even giants can be overcome, even things that seem completely insurmountable. This actually would tie directly to the story of David and Goliath. That we're talking about that, that this was a this was a repeat when David, you know, was a was a young boy fighting a giant and defeated him and him being from Israel. Was that some sort of new concept? According to the Lord, was that the first time ever that uh, a, a somebody who was smaller in stature from Israel defeated a giant that was from, you know, a foreigner in another land? No. This is a cycle. and This is a pattern that goes all the way back to the Torah and back to these stories here. So we should always be encouraged in those things. Anytime that somebody grew up hearing the story of David and Goliath and every young child in Sunday school that's encouraged to, to you can accomplish great things no matter how big you are and the, the Lord being with you. That How much does that build up a young man 
or, or, or a young girl in Sunday school, knowing that even David could defeat even a giant. And that's one of the stories that we love listening to as a, as a child, and, and we're happy, we're encouraged, the, the, the underdog won. But here, when we're older and we're going into a Torah study, do we sometimes gloss over that simple fact of that we can overcome giants? You know, that sounds like a Sunday school story, but as we sit here reading the Torah portion here, I'm describing how Israel, with the power of God, was able to overcome giants and even a kingdom that had giants in it. That should be encouraging to us, that we should let even those stories that you think might be only for a child, that we let those build us up in our faith in the Lord. And as we continue to hear the words and the stories, we should take the encouragement here. As we read through Deuteronomy, we're going to hear blessings. We're going to hear things of, if you obey, this good thing will happen to you. You'll be able to defeat giants. You'll be able to take the land. The Lord will bless you. He'll give you rains in your season. All of those things. And then there'll be times in Deuteronomy when we're being rebuked, when we're talking about, if you do not obey, this is the curses that you are going to face. So as we read these stories here through this Torah cycle, I would encourage us to be encouraged by all things, looking for even the smallest thing that lifts us up in the in the blessings and that we latch onto that and we look at that and let that build us up in our faith to be obedient to God's words and the words that Moses is sharing with us. And that when we hear those words of the curses that we stand here and firmly say, we will not do those things because we do not want those curses. I always want the stories that we read to be encouraging and uplifting. That's what I like to share with my children and with my wife. And what I want to, that's what I always want to, it's where my heart is to teach those things. I'd like to end here with the last couple of verses here of our Torah portion here, verses 21 and 22 here of chapter 3, where it says this. And I commanded Joshua at this time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do all, so the Lord will do to all the kingdoms which you pass, which through, through which you will pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. That being spoken to Joshua and as he go, went and led the children of Israel. But let me say these words to those that can hear my voice. Is that the Lord fights for you. The Lord leads you. The Lord guides you. The Lord is with you. You've seen the things. You look at, look past, uh, past parts of your life where you've had struggles and times in which you never knew. You never thought you'd be able to get through this part of it. Of your life struggles and times and, and people can go back and everybody's story is different, but everybody has a point in their life when they stop and they look and they're like, I don't know how I would have ever gotten through that. But here you are today. That's ancient history. That's some story and that's something you saw in the past. Continue. Take that with you to there where now I'm telling you the Lord fought for you then and the Lord will fight for you today through the trials and tribulations and struggles that you're facing even today. And that even with the, and with the Lord, even the giants before you will fall. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you, Lord, now for Moses' words as he teaches us and speaks. Though, though he knew he was coming to the end of his life, Father, I pray that we take his words to heart. I pray that we would, they would penetrate our hearts and our minds, Lord. And that they would be an encouragement to us. For what we read here, these words, they have power, Lord. They are truth, Father. 
For a man at the end of his life, Father, he is sharing from his heart, pleading with us to obey the commandments. To remember the mistakes that were made so that they're not made again. Father, as we approach the fall holidays and, Father, as we approach these times when we're going to continue to grow closer to you and, and keep your commandments and as we approach the fast, Father, the fast of the ninth of Av, the fast of Yom Kippur coming up in the fall. Father, I pray that we would, that our hearts and minds would meditate on your words and your teachings and your instructions at this time. May we not lose our focus and be distracted by all the other things and by the giants surrounding us and the giants before us, Father. But we focus solely on you, following your word, your instructions, Lord. Lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit through all the things that we face. And Father, I pray that as we go through this Torah cycle, that the people who hear will be encouraged, will be strengthened in their walk and in their faith. That it's not just idle stories of old, Lord, but they are things that, not, that exist outside of time. It's not just that they happened in the past, Father, but they are powerful and they can impact us here in the present and our future as well. So as we go through the Torah cycle, we thank you, Lord, for everything that you've done for us. We love you. We bless you. We thank you. On this Sabbath day, it's in your son Yeshua that we pray these things. Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet V'chayalam natabetocheinu Baruch ata Adonai nonten ha-Torah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Uh, for our Haftor teaching of this week, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Uh, this portion is the third of three Haftor portions called the Haftors of Rebuke. Uh, this is uh, soon, very soon, we're going to be into seven portions which are called the Haftors of Consolation. And at this point... The emphasis on uh, the selection of the Haftor portion that goes with the, with the Torah teaching is not necessarily trying to emphasize a link into um, uh, what is actually taught in the Torah as much as it is a homiletic kind of teaching to, that's centered around uh, the ninth above and also to the fall feast leading up to the Feast of Trumpets. Now, this week's Torah portion, and that's the reason why it's tied together with it, is um, this Hoff Torah portion is always geared to be just before the ninth above. And on the Hebrew calendar right now, next Tuesday, Wednesday, depending on whether you're following our calendar or the diaspora calendar, it will be the ninth of off. And if you recall in the portion that Ephraim had just taught, uh, he, there was a reminder of them being at Kadesh Barnea and about them sending spies in. And then they came back and the spies gave a bad report. There's giants in the land, all kinds of bad things. And the people rejected God's command to go in and take the promised land. And instead they wept in their tents and said, God has abandoned us. God just brought us out of here to kill us. And so forth. And the date we believe that that event happened, the, the spies' bad report when they wept, was the 9th of August. 
And part of the punishment uh, that God put upon, you know, of course, the, the punishment that was put upon that generation is that generation of adults died in the wilderness. They were not permitted to go into the promised land. Uh, their children, whom they feared for, God took them, took them into the promised land. Well, that date that they wept before the Lord and they said all manner of negative things about the Lord, there's another part of the judgment that says, because you've done this, this, is a, this isn't written, this is part of the oral teaching. Because you have done this, then every year on the ninth of Av, I will cause you to weep. And historically, it is the ninth of Av that the walls of Jerusalem have been breached. The, the, temple has been, the temple's been destroyed twice on the ninth of Av. And it has become to all of us and the Jewish people in the world that as we approach the ninth of Av, we approach it and there's an actual fast. It's an interesting fast because it's a fast during the daytime. We don't fast for the whole 24 hours. We just fast during the day. And it's called the fast of the fifth month. Zechariah, uh, the prophet, speaks to a time when the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth month will become seasons of joy. That will be in the Messianic Kingdom. But now, before the Messianic Kingdom, these fasts, the ninth of all in particular here, is a very somber time, a sad time. And the Hoftors of rebuke lead us to it where they pull sections of the prophets to speak to, you have sinned, Israel. You have not done what the Lord said. And what, what is it that is your complaint against the Lord? Tell me how the Lord has mistreated you. This is what you have done to yourself. And it's an effort for Israel to take responsibility for themselves and to turn back again to the Lord and learn to obey the Lord. So you have three Haftors of rebuke that leads to the ninth of Av, and then immediately follow we go into the Haftors of consolation, in which the comforts and consoles the people and tells about the good things that God is going to do for all of Israel despite all of our difficulties. So with that as a context, understanding that Isaiah is going to say some, shall we say, nasty things to Israel, uh, that, that they use this section to be that third rebuke, that third thing leading to the ninth of all. Uh, before I get into it, uh, just as Ephraim introduced the book of Deuteronomy, let me tell you a little bit about the prophet Isaiah, because from here on out, Isaiah is going to be the predominant prophet used for all the Haftors. All the Haftors of consolation are going to come from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the time, uh, he was a prophet to Judah, and he was in the time of when the Assyrians came down and captured um, the house of Israel. He was also a prophet who was aware of that the Babylonians would come down and get the house of Judah too. So he was talking about the enemies having their way with them, uh, why were God permitting the enemies to do that, what was going to be happening to the house of Judah. And so he was giving this message of exhortation to obey the Lord, turn back to the Lord. And he also introduces this for us about how God views all of Israel when these kinds of things are going on. And quite honestly, how God has viewed all of us scattered in the nations. Not as, as, as Paul taught in Romans chapter 9, not all those who say they are of Israel are actually Israel. And what he's referring to is, he said, no, it's the remnant. There is this believing, righteous 
remnant that's in the area, in the confines of Israel, but the vast majority of Israel are sinners and disobeying. But there is a righteous remnant, this thread that extends through history. And one of the things that Isaiah is going to say in this passage, that the remnant in his day was very small. And that had that remnant not been there, God would have turned Israel into Sodom and Gomorrah. His punishment upon the nation would have been that severe. But for the sake of the remnant, he did not totally destroy Israel. And this is the same message that Moses gave to us back in Leviticus 26, that even though you would abhor me, even though that you would reject me and so forth, yet will I remember the covenant I made with your fathers and I will restore you. And it's to the remnant, to the ones who see themselves as the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to those who follow the instructions of the Lord, are righteous before the Lord. They want to do the right thing and they're not being sucked into everything that's going on in the world for it. And this, so this message is to, not only to all of the bulk of Israel that was misbehaving, the house of Judah in particular, but he's also sending a message to the remnant that's in there, and he's speaking to them as well. And in fact, the latter part of our passage uh, is going to be addressing speaking to the remnant, but he's going to talk to all of Israel at the first part. So again, let us look at now what Isaiah has to say to that generation um, that was at the time of his day, which is part of the teaching of the rebuke of the Lord. Uh, at beginning at verse 1, uh, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, uh, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. So right off the bat he says, you're dumber than animals. Animals understand their masters. I'm your master, why is it you don't understand me? And so that's a pretty strong indictment right off the bat. He continues, verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Now, it's really kind of interesting to see how in the world did they do all that. Because that's a lot of steps, a lot of things they had to do. It wasn't one thing. It was a whole series of steps in which that they mixed themselves with other peoples, that they, they were faithfully doing something and they quit doing it. They were doing it, but they, then they stopped doing it. Why did they stop doing it? Probably out of boredom. Probably they just didn't care. Probably they just wanted to find a lazier, easier way of doing things and that there was this other opportunity and they decided to do that. And, and they weren't diligent about the task. They weren't consciously aware of what they were doing. They just kind of fell into it at first. And then when they were confronted with it, then they chose to do it at odds with the Lord. And that's what Isaiah is basically saying. This is what you did. This is how you got there. Verse 5. 
Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds and not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in their uh, presence. It's desolation as overthrowers by strangers. And the daughters of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, uh, besieged by the city. And then he says, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors or the remnant, we would be like Sodom, we would be like Gomorrah. And basically the way he says is, let me show you how far you've misbehaved and how far the Lord has allowed the enemies to have their way. If you were a human body, your head is completely sick. Your vital organs are all in deep trouble. You're, you are wounded and bruised in every of your, down to the sole of your feet, you can't walk. Your entire person is in deep trouble. Now, having reached the grand age that I've come, one of the things that I've noticed is if you get people like me together, and we sit down and we just have small talk, we don't talk about the weather. I call it dueling ailments. You know, I tell about where I'm hurting, how many times I had to go to the hospital, they do the same. You know, they talk about the pain they're in. You know, we always commiserate and say, boy, getting old is not for sissies, you know, and, uh, you know, wimps. And, and, and if you were to take that example of listening to a couple of uh, old folks sitting around talking about their ailments, Isaiah is using the same logic, the same presentation. It says, you're like an old person and every part of you hurts. Where do you want God, if he's going to strike you again and get your t- where do you want him to hit you next? You have already been hit in every place that can be hit. Not only you, but look at the land that you're living in. By the way, your enemies have invaded. And by the way, at this time, Assyria had not only stopped at the house of Israel, they had come down into Judah. Now, they, they weren't able to besiege Jerusalem. Uh, if you remember the very story of, of Sennacherib, who was the great uh, Syrian general, he came down and Isaiah prophesied uh, to the king that not even an arrow would come across, not to worry about because God wasn't going to permit it. And that night, 186,000 Assyrian soldiers got sick and died. You know, that God had protected them uh, during that time and they'd gone. Well, while Assyria was coming down and and laying siege to Jerusalem, they had devastated the whole land. They had burned other cities. They had, you know, everything had been destroyed. The whole land was destroyed. Here they are standing behind the walls in Jerusalem, and they're looking out, and and they're all eating all their crops. And that's what Isaiah is speaking to. And he's speaking to, where if God was going to punish you, name me a place that's going to hit you, that's going to hurt you, that you will suddenly turn and repent. Tell me where God should hit you next, because there's nothing left. The the enemy's already gone through the whole target list. And they are, and he's basically saying, if it wasn't for the remnant that was among you, you'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. By the way, Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't even exist anymore. That's how far they had taken it down. So here's the prophet Isaiah 
trying to speak to the people with the message. So this is the message that he shares. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Again, he's referring to Jerusalem and Israel of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're worthy of that judgment. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the bull, or the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yet even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Isaiah is basically saying, hey, all you folks have been going down to the temple in the midst of what's been going on in the land, going down to the temple and going through the motions of supposedly, quote, obeying the Lord and doing the things the Lord would like to have, I said, you know, the God is sick of you. They got the idea that if they took a, a goat in, and that, that just fixed everything. That if they took a bull in, and they sacrificed, that, that fixes everything. God's now on the hook. He's got to do good things and forget what we did. And in their heart... While they were doing that, they actually think they're manipulating God. They think, if I do this, then God's got to do that, and then that's the way it works. And I don't really have to have faith or believe in God. I don't have to have a, a remorse in my heart. Uh, you know, I, I'm just going to go through the motions. I'm going to express sorrow for what has happened, but I'm not really going to repent. And by the way, God says, you will not get away with that. You, uh, I'm, in fact, let me go ahead and just tell you everything you've been doing, coming in, so I'm sick of it. I'm sick of your stupid attempts to turn this around when you, it's you that needs to be turned around. Don't come and try to manipulate me, you know, for a problem that you need to correct about you. Now, i got to share something with you out of my history. Uh, coming out of the church before going in the Messianic movement, I heard about this passage of Scripture. In fact, uh, a lot of my Baptist brethren used to love to quote this as to the reason why God changed his mind, got rid of the temple system, got rid of sacrifices, got rid of Sabbath and the appointed times and the feast of the Lord, and that we're all supposed to just do this Jesus thing. And then, of course, we set up the church, and going to church and, and all the stuff that we do with that. And they used this passage to discredit Israel and to discredit what God did in his covenant with Israel, the, the laws and commandments and things that he set up with them for the whole temple service, the worship of God, and so forth. That is probably one of the most violent interpretations you could give to a piece of scripture anyway. This is not God saying that I'm getting ready to get rid of Sabbath, appointed times, bringing animal sacrifice, the temple system, the priesthood. It is not 
that. And anybody suggesting that Isaiah was prophesying that this was what God was going to do in the future with Israel is nothing short of either one, he is willfully misinterpreting and, and lying about the word of God, or he's that dumb. He's that ignorant. Because the proper context of this is Isaiah is trying to address with him, you cannot come and present these things to the Lord if your heart is not in it. And Moses has taught emphatically, and in fact Paul used to teach emphatically, that when you come and you make any sacrifice to the Lord, a sacrifice of your lips, a sacrifice of praise, thanksgiving, any of, and by the way that's what these sacrifices were for, was to express praise and thanksgiving and so forth and do business with God, that you're supposed to, Paul says, to put your soul, your whole body on the altar. You're to put your heart into it. But any time that you don't have your heart in it, God doesn't like it. It's not real. All of these were in an effort to help us to bring our hearts near to God. And God has already expressed a multitude of times that if your heart is not in it, he's not going to be receiving what you have to do. He's not going to receive your prayer if your heart's not in it. It, it has to be genuine from you, and he specified particularly ways that you can come and approach him, where you can bring your heart before him, and so forth. So he's not saying, oh, get rid of all those methods. What he's really saying is, even if you do those things and your heart's not in it, it will not be acceptable to me. And that's basically what he was saying to Israel in the day. I know you have the temple system. I know you're bringing those things, and so it's not working for you, is it? By the way, let me go ahead and add a little sting to it. God hates it when you do that. You've burdened him. You've, you've upset him even more. Uh, essentially, what they were doing is they were patronizing God. Have you ever been patronized by someone? Where somebody was appearing to be positive toward you, appearing to be in agreement with you, appearing to be, but in truth of fact, you knew they weren't. And I don't know about you, but every time that's happened to me, it grates against my soul something fierce. I don't know whether I want to smack the guy upside the head or just ignore him completely. But I do not receive what he brings to me. And essentially that's what Isaiah is saying here. Isaiah is saying that your hearts are far from me. You're not with me at all. By the way, when Yeshua came teaching, guess what? If I could summarize all of Yeshua's teaching about us and our relationship with God, what would be the number one thing that he's trying to teach? Bring your heart to the Lord. That's the reason why he didn't emphasize do Sabbath. Keep the appointed times. You can't do Sabbath. You can't keep the appointed times until your heart is in it. And in fact, one of the things I try to share with people today, the Messianic movement, we're not in Jerusalem. We're trying to keep the feast of the Lord. There are commandments that say that certain sacrifices should be presented in Jerusalem. We don't have a temple. We don't have an altar. We don't have priests serving us. There's no way we can fulfill that part. So why in the world are we doing the Feast of Tabernacles in the middle of Oklahoma to show to God 
that we have the heart to obey. And we're saying, God, we, we want to draw near to you. And you've said to us that if we'll draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. But we got to show that we got the heart to obey you. We have to show it to you by our behavior. That is the great message that Isaiah is trying to give here. And in fact, uh, that's the reason why Isaiah is going to get quoted extensively with off doors of consolation. And guess what they're going to be talking about? They're going to be talking about where your heart is at. And this is the reason why the New Testament and the Messiah himself quotes from the book of Isaiah more than any other book in the Tanakh. Because the message of the Messiah was about getting your hearts to come, to appeal to the Lord, to look for a relationship with God. Build that heart relationship with the Lord. That's true repentance. Now, did... And this is why I want to go a step further here. Did he say, well, that's the complete replacement, and once you get your heart right with the Lord, then everything is, is great? No. No. Even the New Testament goes on further to say, for example, John, the beloved disciples, if you say you know him, you have this relationship with him. If you say you know him, yet you do not keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. Because the evidence that you really have that relationship is that you will follow through on keeping his commandments. You will make his word supreme in your life. You will not be choosing what you want to do. You'll be choosing what he wants to do. It's the same thing in, in marriage. When a guy and a gal decide to get married, they make a commitment. The guy's in his heart, I want to do what she wants to do. He make, she makes the commitment, I want to do what he wants to do. So they come together and they're bonded in that they're looking for the best for both of them. They're looking for the Well, God wants that relationship with us. In our zeal to do what God prefers, God in his zeal does what, he, what we prefer. The good, because what what is it that we prefer? To live long lives, to be happy, to see the blessings. Well, that's exactly what he wants to give us. That's exactly what he wants to give us. But he knows it's not possible to give those to you if your heart's not right to receive it. And here is is um, the house of Judah. They've got the temple. They got the rituals, the routines, and so forth. But look at, look at what's going on. They're not getting the blessings. The enemies are having their way with them. They're besieged. They've been wounded in every way possible. And, and do they have the heart now to turn around? Well, we, we kept looking for it, but not so far. It's, uh, this goes a little bit further into the most simple, simple of practical things. I know, and, and this is true of me as well as everybody I've ever met, when we start having troubles, when all of a sudden bad things start happening in our life and they distress us and they discourage us and so forth, what's our first reaction usually? Is it to call upon the Lord and say, Lord, what is it that I need to get going with you better? Or is it to just purely complain to other people, which can't do you a thing, can't do any good for you? 
The real solution, the real solution is for you to go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me with this. I've got this going on. I, I'm not quite sure how to handle it correctly. But I know you know how to handle it correctly, so I'm appealing to you for your help. Instead of going off to other people and complaining to other people because they can't, and, and honest, let's be honest, they can't do a thing for you. But we'd rather talk to people than we would to the Lord about things that are bothering us. And part of having a good relationship with God is that you'd go and appeal to your Heavenly Father first. You might be involved with other people, but you go there first. You, you, you start working it with Him. My uh, wife, as many of you know, um, is dealing with lung cancer at the moment. Thank goodness the Lord has been gracious and extended her life. She is still doing okay. She has her good days and her bad days. But one of the things that has been profoundly uh, sunk into us is the solution to her problem only comes from the Lord. The solution to her problem isn't coming from the doctors or the hospice nurses or, if, for that matter, even any of the medicines that they have her taking. Some of those just mitigate some pain and things like that. They just kind of deal with a couple little side issues and so forth. But the real solution to her problem, which is to for those cancer cells to die and her immune system to become stronger and defeat it, that solution only comes from the Lord. He's the author of life, and we are all subject to his sovereign will. Whether she lives or she dies, it's going to be based on what the Lord does. And so why would we talk to anybody else and look to anything else as our solution? It is the Lord who is our solution. And that is true of every problem in this world. Sometimes you have to get lung cancer to be able to see it. But that is certainly true. Isaiah is trying to express where the real solution is at and to get back to that uh, for it. And any of the artificial efforts that are made are not going to get it. And just appearing to be extremely religious is not going to get it. Now, if I was Isaiah today, and for the sake of discussion, let's say I am. I'm Isaiah today. And I'm looking out over all of the brethren that believe in the Lord. If Isaiah was giving the, the message then, I think Isaiah would be giving the same message today. Let's take a look at our situation. Are we a people, for the most part, who've rejected what the Lord has said? Yes. <laughs> no question about it. You and I as messianics, it's ironic. We're carrying the message that you should obey the Lord and all the other believers are arguing with us. And disputing it. I want to find some way to escape the commandments of God. Now, if that's not a dead giveaway sign of unbelief, I just don't know how to give you a better example. And this is coming from the voice of those who say they're believers. Now, let's examine why they think they're believers. Because they're plugged into their little spiritual community and they're plugged into the church and they go to church on Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, Wednesday evenings. You know, they're plugged in. They're part of the Sunday school program. They're part of the choir. They're part of all of the activities to it. And you know what? If the Lord was standing here today and walked in, you know what he would say? I'm sick of that stuff. 
By the way, if you don't like what I just said, how do you think the children of Israel liked Isaiah, what he said? But the truth of what Isaiah spoke then is just as true today. So what are we to do? I believe the right thing for us to do is to lay down all of our religiosity, our efforts to put God in the box, and get back to the original program that God set up with us. Even for a Christian believer where he goes back and he remembers the story of what Yeshua has done for him, and he calls upon Yeshua to forgive him, and and he just wants to know Yeshua. Well, the same pattern is true. Go back all the way to and remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how God brought our ancestors out of Egypt. And he loved us and he protected us and he gave us the promised land. And he's been trying to work with us the whole time. He gave all those commandments for our benefit. So that we might live and prosper. And by the way, that's all we want is to live and prosper. And do well. And so he gets back to stuff. you got to do justice amongst one another. You have to be obedient. You have to seek out righteousness. It doesn't just come and get handed to you. And if you're going to deal justly with other people, you, you, that, that's an effort. There takes effort to do that. Put your energy into those things instead of putting your energy into where can I find more pleasure. Because if everybody goes out and just wants to find their own pleasure, we're all doomed. It takes work. And it takes effort to do good. So you get the blessings. And I know a lot of people would just like to take easy street and say, well, the grace of God covers that and I don't have to do anything. And I'm here to tell you. Just like God told Israel through Isaiah, you're just a burden to me. I am sick of that stuff. I did a teaching some time ago, early in my ministry, called uh, Sloppy Agape and Greasy Grace. How the religion of the heart has tried to replace what God taught us in the Bible. Well, my heart's right with God, therefore he's going to excuse everything. And I said, I don't think your heart is right before God. I think you've faked yourself out. If your heart is not toward obeying and listening to what he says and striving to do what he says, your heart is definitely not in the right place. And just because you don't feel the motivation to do something, you don't feel the conviction of sin, doesn't mean there isn't sin and you're not in the wrong place. God continues to be merciful toward us. We have the example of how merciful he was with Israel. These are events that took place over thousands of years. Many centuries. We've only lived in this generation. And, and uh, you know, God's already proved that he's merciful. He's long-suffering toward us. We, we don't need to go and prove that anymore. What we ought to do is, like what Ephraim was talking about, let's learn the lessons from the past. What Paul said, those things that happened in the wilderness for our admonition and instruction, so we don't make the same mistakes. Well, how can you possibly... And not make the same mistakes if you don't go back and study what happened in the wilderness. 
if you don't go back and make an effort to understand what happened there, why did those people behave that way? Why didn't they follow with the Lord? If you don't know what that story is and you don't know what those lessons are, how are you supposed to learn those lessons? I tell you, you're doomed to repeat the same lessons. Because they were human beings just like you and me. You and I are sons and daughters of the ancients. We have the same issues. Now, let me encourage you with this. That this wonderful God, the God of Israel, did all these wonderful things and made these commitments and promises and made these covenants with this people and so forth. We're part of that story. Just like in those generations that decided to not obey and had to repent. and So you and I are in our generation and the message is the same for us. So on this final Hoftor rebuke, before we prepare our hearts to come to the ninth of Ab, let us commit to turn our lives around and get going with the Lord again. And to renew our efforts for our hearts to draw near to him. And in drawing near to him, listen to what he says and obey what he says. Not make excuses for what he says. Not fend off what he requires of us. Because in the course of fending off commandments, you fend off justice, loving kindness, Wisdom and understanding. You fend it all off. Let me take you to the final verses here. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, "Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my head against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and I will remove all your alloy and then I will restore your judges as is at the first and your counselors as in the beginning and after that you'll be called the city of righteousness a faithful city but in the course of bringing judgment that's what's going to clean us up when it says I'll remove all the alloys I'm going to make you a pure metal I'm not going to have you be a mixed metal with me anymore. I'll make you a real metal. And I will remove the dross. You will shine. You will not look dull. So the promise is there. What God says he's going to do for us, the remnant. So let us take the counsel. Take what I say is saying. And let us prepare our hearts for the ninth of all. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. And now we leave you with the ironic blessing.
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom.